What is innovation? Innovation is about seeing what is possible, not limiting our thinking by accepting that what we have right now or where we are today is all there is for us in this life's journey. Innovation is about reaching our true potential as individuals, companies, and as communities. In order to reach, out, reach our true potential, we have to challenge ourselves and make ourselves uncomfortable at times. I would like to share with you my personal innovation story. At the age of 21 and graduating from college, I had decided to leave my family and friends and go to America with little money and no contacts. Coming out of college, I didn't have any options that appealed to me in Ireland. There would be options, but they were limited and low paying. I needed to provide for my parents. I knew I wouldn't earn enough money to do that if I stayed in Ireland. America had lots of potential, but was much riskier. I had no contacts and little money, but I had potential and a blank sheet of paper to write my own story. After lots of tears at the airport, I embarked on my uncertain adventure. Leaving your family is hard. Stepping out of your comfort zone is scary. So why did I do it? To create a better life for myself and to better support those I was daring to leave. I did it to achieve what I believed was possible and create a better future. Change and innovation can be exciting, but at the same time, the unknown is uncomfortable and can be scary. Anytime we challenge ourselves to a new way of thinking or push ourselves to do something new and different, we are putting ourselves out there. There is always the possibility of failure. Before I left Ireland, my friends gave me gifts, and one gift made a big impact on me, a pair of cufflinks. Back then, I did not wear suits every day, so I had no use for cufflinks, and more importantly, those cufflinks were from someone who didn't have much money. Cufflinks were worn by successful business people, business people in nice suits with French cuffs. These cufflinks represented who I wanted to be, not who I was. They represented my future, my potential. They said to me, I believe in you. Those four simple words stuck with me. And even today, whenever I feel discouraged or I'm going through a tough time, I remember those cufflinks and those four simple words, I believe in you. Supporting and believing in innovation can lead to potential being unleashed and to achieve something great and to make a difference in our communities. I challenge us all to think about what is possible and reach for our true potential as individuals, companies, and communities. We started in hard times to bring us all in. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power Power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm this week's celebrity guest host, Robert Trenier. I am an energy authority and TA's vice president of strategic innovations and chief innovation officer. And I'm Abigail Sawyer, an associate editor of California Energy Markets, reporting on the Southwest region for News Data and News Data's podcast ambassador for this week. And this is Brian Fawcett, the economic development manager for Klatskin IPUD and the voice of the underground. And I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, manager of Klatskin IPUD's power department and producer for today's recording, Paul Dockery. Welcome, team. Welcome. New, new cast. This is fun. <laughs> I'm inspired. I'm inspired yeah. by that opening monologue. That's great. Yeah. Yes, thank you for sharing nice. your innovation story, Robert. Yeah, very, very. Uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. 
No, we believe in you too. You know, we got to believe Mug right here. We're we're believers. Um, also, I think that's the first time that anyone has pronounced Premier the right way. On the uh, we're going to have to just snippet that and just remember how to pronounce it for all future episodes. Hit that on the soundboard and just insert yes. it right in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's lots of other words that I pronounce differently. Like um, uh, I, I pronounce aluminium and I pronounce oh. garage. And um, nice. the trunk of a car is called a boot. So there's some other snippets for you yes i love it we'll we'll save all those snippets i have an innovation story to to share as well we have public power underground merch so if you want to be the voice of the underground like brian you can actually get a t-shirt that says voice of the underground (laughs) i mean that's pretty innovative right robert it's some merch for i feel like this needs to be up on the screen right now is that something you people can get a little snippet Am I capable of that? Probably. (laughs) Do we have time for that? Probably not. Maybe we'll put it, but you could go put the link in the show notes. There we go. We should all be wearing that merch, actually. I'm wearing a hat that's the merch. Uh, Mm. uh, That'll be on there. Yeah. Yeah. It needs higher contrast. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's it's subtle. We go for subtle. Okay. Okay. Subtlety is nice. Yeah. All right. right. (laughs) Yeah. I I definitely think this. Public Power Underground podcast is innovation at work. So good on you for for putting this together. Uh, yes, right. The the Energy Authority has just put a stamp of approval on the underground as being innovative. <laughs> That's right. Ah, I knew Excellent. it was great to invite you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're ready to go. We ready to go, team? Thanks. So. Ready. Okay, let's do it. This is season four, episode 11. On today's recording, we discuss all sorts of energy news, including the IPCC's Working Group 3 report, the nationalization of National Grid, a 4.7 million fine by FERC, electrifying heavy duty trucks, public power white papers, Aaron reports with Brian reporting, and a bunch of witty banter in between. (laughs) Before we get started, Paul is going to read a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Who's our presenting sponsor, Robert? Who is it? It's the Energy Authority. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's the Energy Authority. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. Just like Brian and I's uh, Klatskin IPUD, it's a public power entity. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise and energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, strategic innovation, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TA to tackle their energy future. So if you're looking for an energy authority, like Robert, to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit teainc.org. That's teainc.org. The energy authority, there is underground as it gets. It's a great name. It's a great name of an organization, Robert. Do you have any? Do you want to add anything to the promo coming from there, representing I, TEA I think, on this podcast? I, I think you did. You did it. You did it justice. So thank you. Well, I, I want to say it's a great acronym as well. It is. <laughs> the it's authority. It's like easy to remember. The Ohio State University. It's like wait. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, That's I don't great. know about comparing to Ohio, Ohio State though. That's uh, I think. You know, Let's not go down that road. It's not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. 
Okay. Are we ready? I think we're, what do I need next? All right. Thanks, Paul. Um, we're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Iron Reports with Brian Reporting. That's right. And this is my first time doing Aaron reports. I talked to Aaron earlier for, for some uh, advice, uh, of which she gave me none. So if she's listening <laughs> right now, I hope uh, she takes that uh, and and does a little better next time. <laughs> Anyways, this is Aaron reports with Brian reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest power market indicators for April 12th, 2022. I'm Brian Fawcett, and I've got your market update for the week. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at 79.13 with natural gas at 6.27 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of 35.25 and a heat rate of 12,600. Spot power in Southern California at 43.38 and Northern California 74.56. Balance of month for mid-sea heavy load is at 65, up 15 from a week ago. May power at mid-sea is up 750 from a week ago to 44.95, and Sumas Sumas gas is at 558, translating to a heat rate of 8,000 BTU per kilowatt hour. May power at Palo Verde Verde is up 795 from a week ago to 58.50 per megawatt hour. August power at mid-sea is trading up $12 per megawatt hour from a week ago at 174.85, with Sumas gas at 670, translating to a heat rate of 26,000 BTU per kilowatt hour. At Palo Verde, August power is at 253.45 per megawatt hour, up 1085 from a week ago. Spring salmon have begun making their way upriver. 52 adult spring Chinook were counted at Bonneville yesterday, April 11th, bringing the year-to-date total to 1,253. October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 96% of normal, and April to September is at 97%. Outflow at the Dalles peaked over the past week at 194.1 KCFS on April 7th. Uh, Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,252, and peak outflow this past week was 182.5 KCFS on April 10th. Checking in on Ansergy's aggregated basin data on snow in the region, the aggregation of all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that will flow through Bonneville Dam is estimated to be 86% of normal. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, peak load this past week was about 8,297 on April 6th at 7.15 a.m. During loads peak, hydro generation was at 11,200, wind gen was 145, and conventional units were 1,134 and nuclear 1,154, all units in megawatts. Because we're all curious, load during the snowstorm yesterday on April 11th peaked at 8,031 megawatts. ENSO for January, February, March period sits at negative 0.9 Oceanic Nino index. The multivariate ENSO index for February through March is at negative 1.30. And the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that La Nina conditions are likely to continue through spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6 to 10 day outlook has temp below normal and precipitation above normal for the region. The 38 30-day outlook issued March 31st shows a leaning for below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation halfway through the month, and I'd say that wasn't a bad leaning. Special (laughs) thanks to Ansergy for letting us use their dashboards, and thanks to Luigi for compiling this week's report. That's all we've got for this update. Thank Thank you for the report, Brian. Any takeaway on fish, Brian? You're the fisher. Fisher, there's a term for that. There's a fisher, there's a 
angler fisher angler Angler. yeah yeah that's a much better term uh i haven't been out (laughs) fishing much but i I missed out on a few trips and and folks were catching fish so i was a little jealous but i've been doing other things that have been keeping me busy so uh I, I will be heading out here at some point to take advantage of those increasing fish runs, but the lower Columbia is now closed. So it's going to be a little, little travel above the dam. My, uh, my eight year old, I think he's still eight. He is still eight. He turns nine in May. Uh, he got his first, uh, what it's like a, the open reel type instead of the kids reel that with the button on it. Yeah. It's got the, what do you call it? It's the thing you flip back. Tell you what, we had some meltdowns as he was trying to cast that thing. For the spinning first reel. Yeah. Spinning reel. Yes. Uh, mm. So he wants to come fishing at some point. But now I get to tell him that the Columbia River is closed. So uh, there's lots of opportunity. Yeah, we'll figure is. it out. You're, you're close to some good spots over there, too. Yeah, it is. It's a nice place. The Northwest is a great place to fish. Anything else that caught your attention, Abigail or Robert, uh, on uh, market conditions or anything you want to talk some more about? Well, I uh, I heard that uh, lower temperatures and higher precipitation are expected, and that does seem like something we're hoping for <laughs> in the short term, at least this year. Trying to catch up. So, yeah, we uh, this is we're recording on a Tuesday. We usually record on a Monday because I couldn't get to the office because of an April eleventh right. snowstorm, uh, which uh, is pretty weird, actually. That's yeah, not I can't weird. remember. April snow in, in my life. I'm sure there has been, but I can't actually remember it. And I've lived in Oregon my whole life. So really interesting. But to take stuff. it when you can get it, right? I mean, yeah. That's what yeah. we've come to. <laughs> yeah, snow on the 4th of July. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, the gas prices continue to, to accelerate. Um, so that's certainly something that is um, very newsworthy at the moment. Definitely. Is that still is that still driven by like the European energy crisis? Is this a continuation of the export of LNG to Europe that's driving the 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 whole country's natural gas prices up, or is is it weather? Is this more recent spike weather related? Any any insight uh, there? Yeah, like I mean, I think certainly um, underpinning this all, you know, is that um, the European crisis. You know, Germany. Um, imports about 40% of its natural gas from Russia. And um, so with, with the situation with Ukraine, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of LNG is flowing over to, to Europe right now. And, um, but, you know, what we're also seeing is that I think certainly my expectation is that there'd be more drilling in response, um, especially in the Permian basis in West Texas, um, you know, and getting associated gas from there. But I think what's what's happening is there's much more producer uh, discipline. Um, there's much more capital di- discipline. So it's not the response to these higher prices isn't um, as elastic as as one would have expected. Um, and I think when you if you keep on telling people don't drill, um, you know, uh, you, you know, don't drill, get away from drilling fossil fuels, um, and and do 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 something else. Um, you can understand the apprehension of drilling more, even though probably the price signals are maybe there. Yeah, we actually had, I, I think the episode was called The Gas Giants. And, and we talked that we had some EEA, TEA experts on 
energy authorities to talk about exactly that, the capital discipline going on in the natural gas markets. I had to go look it up and prep for this. It was back in October of 2021. So this has been, I mean, we think of it, a lot of this in, is tied to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but this has been going on since October of last year, where we've had this pressure uh, in UK and Europe on natural gas prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, pr- the prices over there are just crazy high. Um, yeah. And so... And just certainly that there's an impact from that. Yep. Okay. Thanks for bringing it back around to some power topics away from uh, uh, stories about casting with my eight-year-old. Uh, I think we're ready. <laughs> Are we, everybody ready? We can go. Next up is our weekly walkthrough, uh, public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call public power desktop. Paul, give us the typewriter. Take it away, Abigail. All right. First up, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change published its Working Group 3 report on April 4th. Working Group 3 focuses on climate change mitigation, assessing methods for reducing greenhouse gas gas emissions and removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The conclusion was succinctly put by Damian Carrington at The Guardian in his story published April 4th. A century of rising emissions must end before 2025 to keep global heating under 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which severe impacts will increase further, hurting billions of people. Billions. The IPCC spells out the huge cost reductions over the last decade in solar and wind power and says that some countries already have electricity grids predominantly powered by renewables. It also strongly highlights the big potential impact from energy efficient homes, walking and cycling, greener diets, and less food waste. The most controversial part of the IPCC report is about technologies to bury fossil fuel emissions and suck CO2 from the air. The scientists are, at best, cautious about carbon capture and storage, which could extend the use of coal and gas in power stations, but they are clear it is unavoidable that some CO2 is going to have to be removed from the atmosphere to balance emissions from energy-intensive industries and aviation, which are hard to decarbonize. That would be growing trees, burning plants, and trapping the emissions, or even turning CO2 into rock. When solicited for energy feedback, Energy Twitter provided the following hottest of takes. From Simon Mahan, stuff's bad, but we can fix it if we want to. And added Terry Trimwell at 2T Bolts, badly enough. For more, the link to the report and coverage by The Guardian are included in the show notes. Thanks, Abigail. So I think this is an interesting um, report. And, uh, you know, one thing that I would just uh, comment on is the fact that uh, what we're seeing, say, in uh, Germany right now, which has certainly um, been trying to, um, you know, increase its renewables. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what can also happen is that I think we have to balance uh, this with the cost to the, to the end user. And I think when you see um, the cost to the end users, like we're seeing in Europe, um, accelerate so much, um, you start to see some political pressure. Um, and there can be some short-term fixes. So, for example, uh, Germany was expecting to um, uh, eliminate coal um, by like 2030, and now they're looking at potentially ex- extending that uh, because they're really in a in a, in a tough situation. Um, and you know, in hindsight, you know, when they were um, uh, after the uh, Japanese nuclear uh, disaster, um, they started eliminating nuclear uh, power. 
And, you know, in hindsight, that's put them more and more dependent on, on Russian gas. And as, as I've already uh, talked about, that they uh, import about 40% of their gas needs from Russia. And so with this geopolitical um, flux they're in now, um, there's going to have to be maybe some short-term fixes because, again, consumers will, will be only willing to bear so much in terms of end, end cost. And um, so that's just something I think that when the policymakers are looking at this, um, making sure there's flexibility um, and more you know, flexibility uh, with our options uh, moving forward as they go through to decarbonization, because decarbonization uh, is going to increase volatility in the markets. It's been shown to do that whenever you're going to do, go through a transition, it's going to increase volatility. Um, and you need to make sure that the, the prices aren't uh, going up too much. Um, that will impact uh, consumers that will ultimately uh, put political pressure on the politicians who want to get election, elected at the next election. Yeah, we talked about this in the last episode a little bit too around transmission. So uh, some of the FERC rulings recently have taken into account this like concern about the cost of transmission and the ROE on transmission investments um, and pushing back from a consumer's perspective to make mm-hmm. sure you don't end up with like the uh, uh, setback in your progress towards transmission expansion because you're passing on too much cost to your consumers. So your point, Robert, kind of echoes back to that. If you want to be effective in decarbonization, you have to make sure you don't get the blowback from uh, cost pressures passed on to consumers because then you get political pressure to do something different. So you have to make sure you're managing the transition in cost-effective ways. Uh, It's uh, interesting that that theme kind of repeats and it's a very valid concern. Yeah, and I I think um, it's very easy to look at stuff in hindsight, but um, again, there was certainly, again, just use the example of Germany, in hindsight, they look back and they'll say we were too dependent on Russia, even after Russia had invaded Crimea in 2014 and uh, the Donbass region in 2014. Um, So, you know, there was some warning signs there, certainly that that, that Putin was not a, um, you know, a good geopolitical player. He he had been shown to use energy as a geopolitical weapon in the past, um, and they kind of pushed themselves into a corner um, by their decision with, with nuclear power, um, in response to the Japanese nuclear disaster um, and their push for, for renewables. And they have seen great, great cost increases there. So, um, you know, having more flexibility, I think in hindsight, they say have more flex, more options and more flexibility um, would be a, a key theme um, that will help that, that would help decarbonization um, go a little more smoother. It seems like the, uh, the impulse is to kind of throw everything at the wall right now, see if anything sticks. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, but CCUS was brought up. Uh, that's under that's being explored in the West here as well. Uh, there are states heavily dependent on a coal economy, and they are really looking to try to extend uh, use of those plants and you know the the foothold, the economic foothold of the mines in their jurisdictions and things like that as well, which you know could provide flexibility. But again, at what cost? Uh, not just environmentally, but but this is not an inexpensive technology and doesn't seem to be coming down in price as quickly as a lot of renewable options have been. Um, moreover, the uh, if, if you outfit a power plant with carbon capture, you are going to be generating less electricity, not more, because there's a parasitic load to, to the equipment. So 
It's, yeah. it's interesting, very interesting it how we're going to navigate this. It's uh, going to be delicately and <laughs> I think with a lot of reactivity, uh, <laughs> it would appear. Absolutely. I do. Uh, part of the story that we, we kind of highlighted and is highlighted in a lot of the reporting out of the IPC Working Group 3 report is around this carbon capture um, and actually came across energy, tw- hashtag energy Twitter this morning, mm-hmm. uh, Stripe's announcement of the $925 million advanced market commitment. A fund for carbon removal. So these carbon removal technologies to take it out of the atmosphere and then convert it into rocks uh, to try to transition and and accelerate and innovate in the carbon removal space. So in order to innovate, right, you got to have some funds, you got to have some seed money. And this is one of those market tools that people are trying to, you know, initiate development of that removal technology. Um, But one of the things I wanted to kind of Go ahead, Deppico. Just, uh, just to imagine that the direct air capture is going to require something to run. Uh, maybe a lot of, I don't know, energy? Yes, it's going to take <laughs> okay. a lot of electricity. It doesn't. You can't just go like, oh, hey, that'd be nice and set it up in your yard and it soaks it up naturally and it does a great job. I think it's there are going to be some big fans and a lot of pulling going on. I don't know. Uh, but Yeah, that's at least the the direction we're going right now is your big fans pulling carbon from the atmosphere and turning yeah. them into rocks. It's going to take a lot of electricity. And that's for electric utility enthusiasts, you know, right. I got some right. load. Not going to fight back against that. Oh, no, I have to produce more electricity and sell more electricity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the things around this, around flexibility and making sure that you're doing like least cost techniques for integrating renewables had me thinking a little bit about SRP. Do you have a coming up story, Abigail? I do have a coming up story. Park? In fact, I just learned and I, I haven't gotten down to the details of it, but uh, the Arizona Corporation Commission today did deny Salt River Project the uh, opportunity to expand in a natural gas peaking plant. They were going to expand by, I guess it would be about 125, wait, no, 133%. Uh, They have a a 12 peaker, 12 unit peaker plant that they wanted to add an additional 16 peaking units to. Uh, And it's been controversial. Um, SRP is a public power entity, which doesn't normally have to go through the Arizona Corporation Commission to make its decisions, but because this is a power plant and there's a power plant and line siting committee that is under the umbrella of the ACC and they gave the go ahead, but the commission itself had to weigh in and uh, it's been the subject of a couple of meetings and just today they said no. So I'll be talking with the breaking news. uh, Yeah. At Salt River Project and say, so, so what are you going to do? Because Their position has been, well, we need this extra peaking capacity in order to add more renewables so that we can have flexibility, just as you said. But, you know, other other things that were controversial about it wasn't just the massive amount, but that it was slated to go in next door to a historically black community, which has been putting up with a lot of pollution, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, disproportionate amounts for a good amount of time. So, uh, yeah, like I said, a lot of delicate <laughs> footwork we have to take to, yep. to make these things happen. Um, and you're gonna you're gonna write something up and gonna be in California energy markets this, this week or week? next week? Yeah, this week for sure. Yep. So probably when you get this episode in your feed, you can go to California energy markets and click on that story and read more. Right. <laughs> Drive some content, Abigail. Yeah. Let's and do it. Did, Fawcett, did you have anything on this story before we move to the next one? 
I didn't have a whole lot. I found the uh, the carbon capture stuff really interesting. I definitely like the idea of using carbon capture to remove existing carbon from the atmosphere, not so much to um, to further the uh, coal plants that are you know that are out there. You know, and I think that's a much better use of that technology. It's obviously, um, read a lot of articles on it. Some people are optimistic, some are pessimistic. It costs a lot of money, uses a lot of energy. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that moves forward. Absolutely. I will. So uh, Energy Twitter has a lot of thoughts on this, that, uh, and I love thoughts. I'm going to do a hot take. <laughs> I think the business model for direct air capture may be less problematic. The, 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 the like carbon capture and sequestration that haps, happens at the power plant is more efficient, but it also yeah. has this issue of continuing the project's life. Like, oh, I don't, I can just keep doing this. Uh, whereas the carbon removal, direct air, direct carbon removal is like a, maybe a better business model because you aren't, you're investing in your own infrastructure. It's not furthering life with some other infrastructure. There's something there that I, uh, is a hot take that um, maybe we'll get edited out. You know, that's, that's what we do at Public Power Underground. Some things I say <laughs> get edited out and you never know the more controversial thing I said that you never heard. Well, I. I would like to say one more thing, uh, plugging a little more news data, is uh, that there's an article in uh, Clearing Up from last week about uh, carbon capture, potential for carbon capture at a couple of Wyoming coal plants. And uh, an opponent in Wyoming uh, was quoted in that article saying the most surefire way to close a coal plant is to force it to have carbon capture technology. (laughs) Makes it a lot more expensive, less reliable, and generates less electricity using more water. So... Um, you know, she, her, her take is that the writing's on the wall. That's Shannon Anderson of the Powder River Basin Resource Council. So, uh, it, that's a perspective it is. <laughs> as well. And another reason to go read news data. Yes, indeed. Yeah. How many more reasons do you need? We're just going <laughs> to give all of them. Just wait for it. Okay. We good. Let's do it, Robert. <laughs> all right. Okay, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter. Brian's got the next story. All right. The UK government has bought the electricity system operator ESO oversight division from National Grid for an undisclosed amount. The division of National Grid responsible for keeping the lights on in Great Britain will be returned to public control by 2024 under government plans for the effective nationalization. A new public body, the future system operator, will have responsibility for planning and managing energy distribution with a focus on the challenges posed by decarbonization. The effective nationalization of the ESO division comes just three years after it was formerly separated from the rest of National Grid, albeit within the same within the same corporate group. Rob Davies of The Guardian is the author of the piece. So I, I'm gonna age myself a little bit and just give you a bit of history um, on this. So when I was growing up in Ireland uh, in the 80s, uh, Margaret Thatcher was the uh, prime minister of of England, of Britain. And uh, it was after um, the late 70s where you had um, the winter of discontent. Everybody was on strike in Britain, pretty much. Um, No, the the garbage wasn't being uh, picked up. It was, you know, complete, you know, not, not good times. So she came to power, I think, in 1979. And um, there was a lot of nationalized industries in Britain, and she went about, uh, and her government went about uh, privatizing uh, many of these. Um, and the electricity sector would have been would have been would have been one of these um, uh, areas. 
Um, and so it's interesting that uh, the Conservative Party, which was the party of Margaret Thatcher under Boris Johnson now, has gone about uh, nationalizing um, you know, this part of, of, of national grid. Um, and I think, you know, again, it kind of talks a little bit about what we were talking about last time. Um, I was watching um, Sky News, which is the, the, one of the British news channels, and a lot of the coverage has been about increasing heating bills uh, in, in, in England and, and Great Britain. And uh, there's a lot of political pressure um, on, the, uh, on, the, on, the, on Boris Johnson and his government about these increasing uh, prices. Um, and again, uh, growing up in Ireland, um, it can be quite wet and it's quite wet in England. It can be quite cold. Uh, and especially coming, you know, for the winter uh, heating season, people are going to see their, their bills going up substantially. And again, that puts political pressure. And I think ministers here want some more control um, on this. Um, you know, as we go towards decarbonization, uh, the UK has uh, been uh, has had the biggest uh, reduction in carbon of all the rich countries. I think since something like 2000 or 1999, they've seen a 44% drop in carbon emissions. Um, but that's really a lot of it's the transition away from coal um, in, in the UK. But, um, you know, there, there, there's other areas that they really need to focus on, especially the transport area. Um, and, and that's going to be focused on. So as, as they go through these commitments uh, to get to a, to a more decarbonized future, um, the ministers want some control, again, balancing with what we were talking about before, with the impact on, on end-use consumers. And, of course, the war with the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just thrown a complete curveball in the whole of that and just exacerbated that situation that was already happening. Um, and so that's really what I, th what I think the trend is here. They, they want more control. Mm -hmm. I was curious. So we we talked about this uh, uh, on uh, follow up to Aaron reports too. But you know, a lot of this uh, the UK story has been evolving since last fall um, around this energy crisis and the consumer price crisis, where they're passing a lot of costs onto these end use consumers. Um, and one of the stories is all of the energy suppliers that have defaulted and gone bankrupt over the past uh, basically year. So. One story says 31 energy companies have ceased trading because of the wholesale gas prices. The biggest one, which I think we talked about last November, was Bulb, which has 1.7 million customers, which is in special administration. Don't know what that term means. How how much is do you think this transition and nationalization is related to that consumer pressure? Because we talked about that too, right? It's you have this um, a lot of political pressure by customers um, during this high price period. How, how much do you think that is? Is that the real driver here? Is their experience these really high pressures? And um, Boris Johnson thinks, you know, he's he has the political uh, like uh, mandate to go do something dramatic like this. This is pretty dramatic. This is pretty dramatic, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd say it's not unprecedented. So what I think I've seen as well in the UK is they have gone, the, the rail system uh, was privatized and they've kind of renationalized some of the rail system as well. Um, and again, due to consumers um, not being happy with the, with the status quo and, and where, it, where it's at. Um, and again, I think that these are bread and butter topics. Um, you know, you think about if I'm doing my commute to work on the train and the service is terrible and the prices are crazy, 
um, you know, that's, and you're going to, you, you know, you're voting on that, right? You're voting on my yeah. energy costs have gone up and I'm voting on that. I'm not happy. I'm, I don't feel good. Um, so I think that that's, that's certainly a big, uh, a big driver. And of course, you know, again, people are making us, you know, all countries around the world are making commitments uh, to, to de decarbonization commitments. Uh, we are on the path to that. And I think they want to make sure they have enough, they have more control. I think that's a big part of this. Yeah. Any thoughts here, Brian or, or Abigail? I don't have anything to add. Not really. I, I am remembering a video I saw about a guy whose job it is to manage the grid uh, in England after a certain popular television program shuts down on like Sunday evenings and everybody turns on their kettle uh, to make tea and talk it over. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, that's going to be a government problem now. <laughs> so We'll see how that plays out because I think it really is that. No, most folks aren't uh, the nerdy folks uh, driving in and, and going, well, but it's the price of gas and it's because of Putin and blah, blah, blah. They're going, darn it. Uh, the lights went out when I tried to heat up my kettle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> down with the government, down with the nationalization, bring back Thatcher. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's funny. Like, so um, growing up in Ireland, uh, if there's ever a problem, if anything ever happens to you, that's bad. The whole solution is I'll put the kettle on and uh, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a cup of tea. Like that's the, that's the, that's the solution. Yeah, and I, I, I'll tell you something else that's, that's uh, kind of humorous. Um, so I always remember um, in, when they had the California energy crisis, um, it was back in the nineties, um, they were putting some price caps on, on the markets. Um, and um, I'll always remember in Ireland, I think um, there was a big outcry about the price of Guinness and that publicans were charging too much for Guinness. So they actually <laughs> instituted a price cap on Guinness. Um, so I, we always have our priorities, you know, right. <laughs> Is the price cap still in place? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I just Guinness remember traded was, as a commodity. <laughs> yeah, there, there, was a, there was a lot of outcry about, about public, publicans um, were charging too much. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, let's put a kettle on. I need a I need a typewriter, and then we're going next. You ready, Robert? I'm just going for it. I don't know what I was supposed to do there. Our next news story comes from an article published March 30th uh, by Ethan Howland at Utility Dive. Constellation New Energy agreed to pay $4.7 million for allegedly violating California independent system operator market rules that are designed to ensure the grid operator has enough power, according to an agreement the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission approved Tuesday, March 29th. According to FERC, the company had a practice of offering imported RA into the day ahead market at $399 per megawatt hour from unspecified sources. If the offer cleared, Constellation New Energy planned to rely on the spot market to buy the electricity. The company would reoffer the imported capacity in the real-time market at either $899 per megawatt hour or $999 per megawatt hour. In June uh, and August of 2017, Constellation New Energy was unable to secure electricity in the spot market and failed to meet Kaiso's dispatch orders, FERC said, noting the company stopped that business practice. FERC's enforcement officer said it was unreasonable for Constellation New Energy to expect it would make be able to wait to secure electricity in the spot market to support its RA imports when the market was constrained. Constellation New Energy is a unit of Constellation Energy, which separated from Exelon last month. 
Uh, they agreed to pay a $2.4 million fine to the U.S. Treasury and $2.3 million to CAISO. The company agreed to the facts described by FERC's enforcement office, but neither admitted nor denied the alleged market violations. Uh, we're going to link to the article in the show notes from Utility Dive and maybe maybe California Energy Markets did. did y'all cover this? Uh, no, and I, and, uh, I, I didn't find any, any coverage uh, in our archives, but uh, you know, I think the, bit, the big news here is that... Uh, well, to me, I, I'm just wondering what took them so long. I mean, this is a 2017 violation. So uh, I, what I can say is that the market's doing a little better at getting ahead of that sort of thing now. I know in, in New Mexico, um, they were, they're, they've had to extend operations at a coal plant this year because P&M, public service company in New Mexico, the operator of that plant uh, had planned to get out of it June 30th, but supply chain constraints, uh, put a delay on the renewables that were supposed to replace it. And one of their big worries was like, oh no, we can't play fair with Kaiso if we <laughs> are gambling on resource adequacy. You know, you can't make it up with market sources. So um, we're, we're getting a little ahead of that now. Uh, yeah. And uh, which is, which is good, I suppose. But uh, I think, I think it's interesting that it, you know, you, you think it takes a while for FERC to do things. It takes a while for them to bring the money in, too, um, when somebody screwed it up. So <laughs> process, you know, there's some due process. They probably started it. Certainly. Earlier. Oh, due like, process. Clearly. I'm all for due, due process. process. But you wonder yeah. why transmission takes so long to get up. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Interesting. Like the the focus on capacity has definitely turned uh dramatically probably since the blackouts in the summer of 2020 it was 2020 right the 2020 yeah as, as if we needed anything else in 2020 um and and it is interesting the scope of these fines and i wonder if some of it was just sending the signal at the right time on the fines right the hey these yeah. are fines it's yeah. real and we're going to enforce these and it, yeah. a lot of these are as much a market signal as they are um you know, Indeed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, it, as we've said before, you know, uh, uncertainty is the theme of pretty much everything these days. So yep. people would rather it not be that way when it comes to flipping on the light switch or turning on the kettle or their AC <laughs> yep. in the summer. So, uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? Find it is just not good enough. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's just not good enough. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I'd agree um, in terms of um, you got to be able to point to to capacity source. So um, you know that you can't just go into the market and hope for the best. That's not what the market's supposed to do. Right. It seemed pretty blatant to me. I'm not an expert in this area, but it was just kind of <laughs> interesting that it like uh, blatantly did it and uh, didn't didn't seem to care a whole lot until they they got caught. I, I don't know if that's a proper take or not, but. Mm. There's definitely some matter of fact reporting in there because it looks like FERC uh, laid out their case very eloquently and the they were not contested. Yeah, it was reading. like, so it's you got me. Cost of doing business. <laughs> yeah, one hopes not, but yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Are we ready for the next one? Okay, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter and... and Abigail's got the, got the next story. Yeah, so uh, I wrote this one. Uh, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak on March 29th signed a memorandum of understanding committing Nevada to work with 18 other signatories to electrify truck and bus transportation by 2050 in their states. 
The signatories commit to a goal of 100% of new medium and heavy duty vehicle sales in their jurisdictions being zero emission by 2050. An interim target of 30% zero emission sales for such vehicles by 2030 is also included in the MOU. The initiative was launched in 2020 by Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management, a nonprofit association of air quality agencies founded in 1967 to address air pollution from New England power plants. California, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Hawaii also had signed the initiative. So, uh, yeah, that's it's not just in the power plants. <laughs> no. So I, I can start. I, I found this to be really interesting. I think that uh, kind of proud of, of being part of the West Coast that's uh, that signed on to this. I, I do think 2050 is probably a, a good target because electrifying uh, heavy duty vehicles is not going to be easy. We're going to need some huge advances in battery technology to do so. I I've, I couldn't find the, the actual MOU. I found it interesting that um, they talked a little bit more about just zero emissions. And I, I wasn't sure if this included other technologies like uh, green hydrogen, that sort of thing that are maybe a, a little more viable earlier, potentially than, um, than uh, batteries for heavy duty vehicles. So uh, still more to come on that, but I, I found it to be interesting. And uh, I'm just curious to see how the market moves on this and how quickly. Yeah, like like one thing is certainly we've seen in the commodity markets is that lithium, the price of lithium and many other materials that go into batteries have just been going up like every with everything else. Um, so, you know, I think certainly when, when you talk about the batteries, there's going to be a, have to be, you know, they're going to look at a lot of different chemistries that go into into the batteries and, and they'll have to continue to do that, especially for these, as you say, the larger vehicles. Um, that may require different chemistries. Yeah, something a little bit lighter, uh, potentially, but more dense from an energy standpoint. Because I think that the big talking point around um, heavy-duty vehicles is you have to add so much batteries, you start taking away from the ability to to haul a large amount of weight because you, you're, you're already hauling a lot of weight in the battery. Right, which is one thing that makes hydrogen look a little more attractive because it doesn't weigh much. <laughs> that's exactly that's, that's part of the benefit. But yeah, there was an interesting article. I can't remember if it was yesterday or today, actually, strangely enough, but in the New York Times about whether trucking companies, no truck, the, the companies who make trucks, actually, not the companies, not not the ones who drive them, but um, which direction they're going to go on that. You know, it's kind of a VHS or Betamax question uh, to date myself there. Um, but you know, what what's going to What's going to emerge as the dominant technology? Because do we have the hydrogen infrastructure? They all take energy. Uh, hydrogen right. is a little bit of, an, uh, of a demanding <laughs> thing to produce. So um, you can plug it into the grid and draw and charge your battery, or you can get the hydrogen, which is going to have to be have to come from generating electricity as well if we're talking about decarbonizing so interesting those are times. not not small <laughs> um not small electrical loads not at all get into a whole lot but it definitely is going to take some uh, new infrastructure if we're going to have a, a whole bunch of uh, green hydrogen plants yeah yeah and, and there is the issue of the battery chemistry too and, and what it could be where it will come from if it's going to spontaneously combust uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's our tolerance for such things yeah 
I think there's a lot of work left to be done on medium and heavy duty transportation. It's a big segment, big energy use that yeah. needs to be decarbonized. There's a lot of room for innovation, Robert, um, in this space. As electric utility enthusiast, I'll champion the electric use because I like <laughs> retail sales of electricity. Um, I did, uh, I'll plug the episode we had, a bonus episode last week with uh, Northwest Naturals' Chris Craker. And uh, we talked a little bit about this efficiency of conversion to H2 because you do... You know, you lose some of the um, you know, energy during this conversion process, and that's it's a trade-off, right? Of like, okay, my battery is a more efficient storage mechanism uh, to store electricity and use it in an electric motor, which is more efficient. Uh, but hydrogen is lighter, so there's massive trade-offs that uh, that somebody's going to be paid uh, paid well to innovate around. It's a good space for innovation, isn't it, Robert? Absolutely, it is. Yep. <laughs> We're, we're hoping to make, have more sales regardless, one way or the other, right, Paul? <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll convert. Yeah, I'll do some electrolysis in Classic and I Beauty Service Territory. <laughs> Anybody interested in that? Anyway. Um, that's it. Let's hit the typewriter and move on. All right. Bonneville's public power customers have taken an important step in laying the foundation of the preference contract that will replace the regional dialogue contracts after they expire in 2028. Both the Public Power Council and PNGC Power issued white papers on the contract structure. PPC's 30-page paper reaffirms public power's preference rights to the federal Columbia River power system, acknowledges BPA statutory obligations, and supports the continued use of a tiered rate structure. The paper also calls for final contracts to have durability with adaptable products, services, and terms that will allow BPA customers to meet their needs as they evolve over time. When, re when reached for comment on the contract negotiation, Public Power Underground special correspondent Matthew Shretnick stated, in 1983, Robert Greening, then head of the Public Power Council, began a law review article with the line, being a preference customer is not what it used to be. While I don't know if I agree with Mr. Greening, as the Northwest continues to engage with BPA provider of, with BPA's provider of choice initiative to shape the next iteration of BPA's power supply contracts, a review of just what preference means is likely beneficial. Continued Matt, public preference is the requirement that BPA prioritize public bodies and cooperatives in the sale of power. In the Northwest, municipally owned utilities, public utility districts, PUDs, and electric cooperatives have priority when it comes to purchasing energy marketed by the Bonneville Power Administration, hence the term preference customers. End of selected quote. Not the end of the quote from Matt, who has more to say about preference if you ever want to talk about it with him. And maybe we'll get him back here to talk about it further at some point. Links to the article and clearing up covering the publication of PPC's white paper and both PPC and PNGC's white papers will be included in the show notes. This was uh, a great article and clearing up what well, a good coverage by Steve Ernst. Uh, a lot of work went into the white papers, both by PBC and PNGC. Um, I have lots of thoughts on products and services needed within the Northwest to, you know, like optimize the value of this federal Columbia River hydro system and orient it appropriately for public power and the durability we need in the next contract. But that's probably for another time that we can get into it a little bit deeper. I'll just say I appreciate Matt's comments around preference. And uh, uh, I decided to include a lot of quotes from him because he's smart. And yeah, anything you have, Robert, on the next contract, TEA's got some customers in the Northwest. 
Yes, yeah, yes, we do, and we're we're working with them uh, closely. Good, Abigail. This is a very Northwest public power topic. Very Northwest, indeed. <laughs> One of the things we talk about is how important it is to be durable in the face of maybe market expansion to other regions. That's important for the entire West. That I'm is where sure these products could make sense. That's a place where market. Yeah. And where markets are definitely innovating. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they <laughs> Looking are. around, uh, figuring out who to buddy up with and yep. how. <laughs> and how. Yeah. We'll okay. We're running out of time. So we'll cut this one short. Thanks to Matt for the quote. Uh, and if uh, anybody wants to talk to him, you know where to find him. He's a special correspondent. He's got a Matthew Shrednick special on the store. Back to the store. We have merch, including a Matthew <laughs> Shrednick special t shirt. You good? I think we're good. That's it. Let's hit the typewriter and move on. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment. We're calling Energy West Light. So uh, Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, governmental relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. That is nwppa.org. Believe in public power. Well done, Brian. Next up, we're TLDRing our way through the news in a segment we're calling Energy West Light. This is Energy West Light, a segment where we TLDR our way through the news. I'm Paul Dockery. I'm Abigail Sawyer. And we're lightening Being up Energy, Energy West. West. <laughs> the promo also for Energy West News Data's uh, weekly podcast. Right. That maybe we should convince Abigail to, uh, to maybe do some. Maybe you should get on that one, Jason. I, I uh, recorded it this morning. I'll have yes. So, yes. Big podcast week for me. <laughs> big podcast week for Abigail. Okay, yeah. you're up first. All righty then. In fish news, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has developed a new fish tag it describes as a fit bit for fish, but which actually does more. While both can track locations and heartbeat, the lab on a fish will also track information about the surrounding environment and biological data, including tail movement and calories burned. Environmental data collected include water temperature, pressure, and magnetic field. Reporting on the story by Casey Mahaffey in Clearing Up. Casey also recorded or covered recorded. I mean, she, she, she can be on the podcast too, but she also covered our next story. The snake river basin and other parts of Oregon and Southern Idaho will likely see major water supply deficits this summer, according to the Northwest river forecast centers, April 7th official water supply forecast, even considering an early April storm, the volume of water flowing to lower granite dam from April through September is now forecast at just 75% of the 30 year normal, a drop of four percentage points in the past month. This means that without significant rain or snow, the Columbia River's largest tributary will contribute far less to the basin's water supply this year. 
And Dan Dan Catchpole reports that Seattle-based Trident Winds wants to develop a 2,000-megawatt floating offshore wind farm off the Washington coast and isn't waiting for the federal government to auction leases for developmental rights on the outer continental shelf west of Grays Harbor. The company submitted an unsolicited lease request to the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to pursue Olympic Wind, Trident's name for its proposed development. BOEM will first make sure Trident Winds is eligible to get a lease. After that, the agency must see if any other developer is interested in the area. If there's interest, BOEM would then hold a competitive lease process according to its website. We need to convince Dan that he needs like a thumbnail photo on there too. We need some offshore wind pictures and clearing up. Who's in charge of that, Abigail? Need some pics. Good question. Yeah. 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 Make, make question. sure. Take a memo, okay. Dan. Memo, Dan. He won't, do you think he listens? I don't even know if he listens. I bet he listens. <laughs> I don't know. Rick Adair has coverage of Moody's and Moody Investor Services affirmation of BPA's AA2 rating. Moody also revised its outlook up from stable to positive. The affirmation of the rating considers the agency's strong position and expansive network of hydro and transmission assets, access to competitive power, long-term power supply contracts with customers through 2028, and credit supportive attributes as a line of as a line agency of the government. I really messed up that reading. Uh, Next time I'll practice more. The top story out of California energy markets comes from editor Jason Fordney. Wholesale electricity prices rose significantly in the California independent system operator territory in the last quarter of 2021, compared with the same period in the previous year, as natural gas prices pushed them upward. Kaiso's market monitor said, Day-ahead energy prices were up 50% in the quarter year-over-year, Kaiso's Department of Market Monitoring said, as gas prices rose by more than $2 per MMBTU at major trading hubs, Henry Hub, SoCal CityGate, PG&E CityGate, and El Paso Permian. Gas prices increased by 57% at SoCal CityGate and by 65% at PG&E CityGate in the quarter, pushing up marginal energy prices across the Kaiso footprint. Yeah. Uh, Jason also has a really nice thumbnail picture of a substation, which I think are beautiful with a uh, double yeah. rainbow. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. I don't know what it relates to in prices, uh, but I there know. it is. And <laughs> factoid, we're just going to insert this in there. I learned just this past weekend that the second rainbow is inverted. Didn't Did people know that? I didn't know that. The Ooh. first one is the normal, but it refracts a second time. I actually told my my mother was visiting for spring break. This is all background information. They'll probably end up getting cut. Um, but she told me this. I was like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. And then uh, it was verified. And so now I told my mom, I'm sorry. And then I love her. The top story in California <laughs> energy markets on April 8th was from Jim Dip. Do you, how do you pronounce that, Abigail? Jim DePeso. And DePeso. this is actually the top story in the Potomac section. So The top story in the Potomac section. Yeah, he's Jim our DePeso. federal Potomac correspondent there. So There we go. Yeah. The Supreme Court on April 6th reinstated a Trump administration rule that narrows states' Clean Water Act certification authority over energy and other infrastructure projects. The court's action left the door open for Biden administration's plan to rewrite the 2020 rule. I left that as like a question. I don't know why I just stopped there. I read it as a question, um, but we're, yeah. Okay, we're up next. Oh, also from Jim DePeso in the April 1st edition, not one of the April Fool's articles, President Joe Biden on March 31st invoked the Defense Production Act to spur expanded domestic mining and processing of critical minerals needed to produce batteries for electric vehicles and energy storage. 
Biden ordered the Department of Defense to support domestic extraction and processing of lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, and manganese. Think about your take on this for at the, at the end, Robert, because we're going to come back to it. You talked about this, this issue earlier, so we're going to come back to you. Okay, uh, quick TLDR out of the Billings Gazette, thanks to Energy New Digest for helping us find it. Bloomberg is reporting that Colstrip power plant operator and co-owner Talon Energy is seeking loans for a potential bankruptcy. On an earnings call late August, Talon told investors it was $4 billion in debt. Tom Ludy covered the news for the Billings Gazette. And coming back to Casey Mahaffey, Two groups representing public power in the Northwest and nationwide have sent letters to the Northwest congressional delegation and the Biden administration asking for faster action and more transparency in Columbia River treaty negotiations. Both letters point to what they're calling a $150 million annual overpayment to Canada in the form of carbon-free hydropower that is paid by Northwest electric ratepayers. So I don't know what you have to say about that, guys. <laughs> And we uh, we were clo- we started with Casey. We're closing with Casey in the April Fool's edition, uh, not the April Fool's edition, but the April first edition. Not an April Fool's joke. A White House blog signed by top officials of five federal agencies indicates a shift in perspective on future management of the Columbia River salmon and steelhead, and on the longstanding issue over the four Lower Snake River dams. Although the blog post. Uh, does not lay out any specific actions. It acknowledges tribal fishing rights and the impact of federal dams and promises change. Quote, we cannot continue business as usual, doing the right thing for salmon. Uh, Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads and thanks to Ian for compiling them. Now back to the crew for a closeout of the episode. Well done. That's ready. Paul and I, and that's That's energy energy West light. Light. (laughs) That was a longer than usual. That was almost the energy West, like intense version. Yeah. It seemed. Yeah. Heavy light, heavy light. (laughs) So I told you, get uh, ready, Robert. I told you, you're ready. I'm I'm, I'm ready. Um, And again, I go on tangents, so I'll be fine if you edit this out, but uh, one of the one of the things I'd like to dive deeper into is just you know the article about the inflation, right? We're seeing a fifty percent increase in, in California um, or Kaiso um, uh, wholesale prices, you know. And if you just think about everything, um, everything's going up. The, the price of gasoline's up, rents are up, um, you know, the price of food is up. You know, I was just talking like you know Ukraine is the bread ba- known as the breadbasket of, of of Europe. Um, and you know, Russia also exports a lot of a lot of stuff. So we're seeing everything pretty much go up. Um, and you know, with the Federal Reserve behind the curve in terms of inflation, I think inflation report came out today. I think it was like eight point five percent was was the inflation report. Um, they're behind the curve. They're going to have to raise interest rates aggressively. Um, so I, you know, a, a, a great part of the U.S. economy is consumer spending, and I don't see how the consumer is not going to be squeezed, and the consumer spending is not going to be squeezed. And I think, from an economic perspective, as a country, we need to be concerned about the potential increased chances of recession moving forward. So again, all these, all these, um, you know, with the policy of the Federal Reserve being behind the curve, uh, with the inflation uh, that we've been seeing, um, and it's been continuing. Um, I think that uh, certainly has increased the chances of recession in, in the U.S. Um, over the next year or two, uh, would just be my perspective on that. Um, so um, that was just on, the, on, on that. And then I'll just comment on the um, critical um, minerals. 
you know, you know, it is going to be coming increasingly important, especially when you see uh, Russia using mining and and resources as a geopolitical weapon. Um, you know, China has a lot of rare earths, um, and you know, a lot of times you're going, you know, going to these other places um, that are maybe not. Um, stable uh, to try and mine a lot of these things that we're going to need for our future um, you know, uh, production of renewables and, and other things, other technologies. Um, it's going to be very important that uh, more and more uh, you know, uh, production comes from uh, you know, countries that are aligned with America or in, uh, even better if it's coming from America itself, just from a geopolitical perspective. And I think this invasion of Ukraine has put that in a very, uh, very great uh, detail and focus um, as of right now. And I think that will, that trend will continue. And you're already seeing that with, um, you know, uh, US doing agreements with Europe to supply a lot of LNG in the future. And Germany's, you know, building two, two new LNG uh, plants to take more LNG um, as they try and diversify, um, you know, their, their, their energy source um, away from Russia. And, and I think that that trend's going to continue continue and accelerate moving forward. Yeah. Uh, so one of the I was curious on your take. Um, one of the things I I think I'd heard was that it really isn't that we have less of these rare earths. It's just we haven't developed the infrastructure to access them and then uh, both extract and then uh, convert them from you know, mining to actual usable materials. Um, and I was actually curious, Abigail, I think you covered a geothermal plant uh, in the Southwest that was actually getting lithium as a byproduct of its uh, extraction of some geo at some geothermal plant. Do you remember this article from, a Brian, um, do you remember this article? This was I'm, one that we, you remember that? Yeah. Um, I do remember that. Are you guys hearing the motorcycles? Cruising I know, by I love it. It's great. Sound <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so let, uh, giving space to edit that if necessary. But um, I know, I see, let's see, I, I have covered some stuff about, you know, pulling lithium out of, maybe it's, uh, there, there's some interesting stuff. The Salton Sea is definitely a place where you can get okay. a lot of lithium. And I think that might've been uh, my former colleague, David Krauss, who, uh, who's okay. no longer with with news data, uh, we miss him. He went on to write about particle physics somewhere. So, you know, anyway, everybody has their thing. But uh, yeah, he he wrote a lot about uh, lithium extraction from the salt and sea okay. brines. And there's a geothermal plant, geothermal activity over there. There's geothermal activity all over the yep. Southwest. So um, we, we wonder why we're not making more of it um, right now, making more of that potential, that innovation, because uh, yeah, it's under... Beneath our feet, you've, you've got to strike it just right. But you know, once you do, you've got baseload. It's carbon free. Yeah, and there's a lot of as you do that geothermal extraction and, mine, and drilling, you you get access to some of these rare earths. Was I think the take on one of these articles that we did cover is in some of the steam that comes up and that process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I'm I'm remembering. I think I read this, but yeah, like you can you can pull them out as they go through because I mean the yeah. geothermal typically you know you pull it out you run it through your turbines and you put it right back in so it's a pretty small footprint all in all yeah. it's just really the footprint of the power plant and construction and everything it's yeah not a huge amount of mining for geothermal itself but you know get what you can out of it while you while you're there. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. So Robert, how much of this do you think is infrastructure? And like, we need the infrastructure to extract these and then uh, convert it uh, less. It's uh, the ge uh, geographic location of where these are located. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, I think why America has been so successful with um, extracting shale gas that's because you had everything coming together. You had the expertise, you had the capital, yeah. um, and you had the infrastructure. Um, uh, and so like some other countries, you know, other people say, well, why aren't other countries doing all the shale? Like there is shale elsewhere. Um, and it's because, you know, it's the infrastructure and you need all that. So you have to build up, you have to have a focus on it. Um, and that this is, you know, as certainly the market signals are being sent for a lot of the prices of these, you know, uh, commodities, there is an incentive to drill, build the infrastructure, drill, um, because the the market prices are so um, are so attractive right now. Um, and I think, as well as that, the the governments will be more encouraging of this um, because they understand that from a geo geopolitical perspective, they want to be in control of their destiny and they don't want to be relying on other other countries that could uh, be poor geopolitical actors. Yep. Are you coming in with something, Abigail? I saw you come off mute. Um, no, yeah, I, I think I think Robert's spot on. Um, I do. I wonder about you know. There's always the issue of the political will um, in this country and the environmental issues, the permitting, things like that. That are you know the, those are reasons we've taken a lot of the uh, more damaging, if you will. Uh, sorts of technology elsewhere <laughs> where there are, where the environmental laws are less of an issue and things can happen. So as we've been developing those metals in China or Mexico or places like that, um, you know, we're going to have to figure out it, it, how important it is to do that um, within our borders, I think, and, uh, you know, what the sacrifices we're, we're willing to make in that regard are. So it, it's definitely heating up in a lot of the untapped regions if you you know in the southwest where there's a lot of land a lot of potential for solar and winds and a lot of mineral you know nevada yeah. is a place that's really got a tremendous amount of mineral wealth uh so. yeah i've actually uh heard that some of the technologies we developed as part of that shale revolution are what's going to help enable geothermal to be successful that oh, drilling technology um, is, is an, it has been an innovation that'll be translatable to the clean energy transition. What do you think of that, Robert? That was a good segue. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good. And like, that's, yeah. that's really what you do. A lot of times it's not, maybe it's applying something that's been done in one industry to another industry or one area to another area. Um, and that can be, that can be a great innovation. At work. Yep. Brian, you got anything, you, uh, any articles you wanted to cover? Uh, no, I would echo um, Abigail's thoughts on that, though. I think there's some real pros and cons to uh, domestic production of, uh, say, lithium, right? And there's some environmental concerns for sure, but I would I would pop, uh, say that we probably are going to do it in a much more environmentally friendly way here than we are uh, pushing it off elsewhere in, in other countries that maybe don't have as, as uh, strong of environmental laws and that sort of thing. And I think from a overall perspective it's it's much better to do that locally with uh with better laws uh you know or with uh, more stringent regulations um so i i see why we've gotten to the point of, or you know where we're at now but um i think bringing it back domestically is is probably a win-win overall yeah 
Yeah, I, I think it's a time of some very, you know, I think all this conversation we've had today, it's a time of some very interesting conversations and a lot of balancing acts going on. Um, and events will, like the the war in Ukraine, events like that will will bring will, will bring the balance a little, shift the balance a little bit uh, where it was before. And um, I think we've already seen this trend um, away from some of the globalization we've seen in the past. Um, and I think that trend will probably accelerate and continue. Okay, that's all the news we're covering this week. The next regularly scheduled episode will be recorded April 25th and published April 28th. To make sure you don't miss it or bonus episodes in the meantime, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. Okay, so the Public Power Underground Substack, if you were signed up there, you got the email notification about the merch with links to how to purchase it. So <laughs> go there, sign up. They were the first, I mean, they were like the fourth or fifth, to be honest. Like I texted people. Um, I told <laughs> like, I told my friends, hey, check this out for me. Matt Shretnik was the, you know, the test subject. They got to order the first one, see if it actually worked. Um, but they were the first, it was the first broadcasting of the site. So publicpowerunderground.substack.com and gets a link to all the merch. Uh, Robert, you did a wonderful job. Do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. I, I really appreciate the, uh, the invitation and the opportunity to uh, speak with you all today. And um, I'm glad that you could understand me. Okay. No, I'm so honored that you, that you accepted the invitation. Like we got, we got connected and I was a little nervous, like, oh, is he really going to say yes? And you did. You came through. That's awesome. <laughs> I appreciate it. Abigail, your first time. Do yeah. you, you want to get in the rotation? I'll put you in. Sure. We'll do a three-person rotation from, yes. Yeah, let's time. do it. Let's yeah. do it. You did great. I really appreciate <laughs> you. you. Do you feel appreciated? And indeed I do. Yeah. Okay. You feel Always. heard. You feel heard. I do. And that's a rare thing. You know, when you go off on energy, <laughs> topic, a lot of folks kind of zone out. So <laughs> it's always nice to be heard. <laughs> Not our audience. Our audience no. wants the nerdy topics. That's what they're there here you go. for. Brian, that's right. Right. Do you like, do you like what we're doing? You feel good? Love it. Always nice to be back for sure. Okay. You feel val. you feel the value. You feel the appreciation coming through. You want me to come give you a hug? You're right there. Yes. <laughs> After this. Yeah. You're not going to hug on camera. Come on. No, we aren't going to hug. <laughs> I dare you. Yeah. That says sub subscriber only content. <laughs> you might have to cut right. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, as always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to Paul on Twitter at Manager um, or if you're a friend of the underground, you can send any of us a note. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. <laughs> That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We started in hard times to bring us all in. Into the laughter through thick and through thin. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. That means TEA is not on the hook for all your comments, Robert. That's just it's just it's just all on you. Um, and Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team of Pioneer 
Senior Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. And special thanks to our celebrity guest host, Robert Trenier, for participating in this week's episode. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch! And through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within roll on enthusiasts roll on